Welcome into another edition of the Hops and Spirits Podcast. We're under the influence of craft beer this week, and we have a great panel for you. But before we get to that, don't forget to check us out on social media at Hop Spirits, all one word on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and even uh, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And we're also on YouTube as well. So go subscribe, go like us, follow us. And uh, don't forget to give us a five-star review on your favorite podcast player because that really helps. And we really appreciate you. But we've got a lot to talk about. We have a, a full house tonight. Everyone is in and we have a new face on the panel as well. So we'll go ladies first and we welcome in Lindsay Hayes, Cicerone beer tender, and also does a lot of marketing for some breweries down in the Charlotte area. Lindsay, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. And we also have Neil Witte, Master Cicerone, owner, founder of Tap Star and Craft Quality Solutions. Neil, welcome back. Thanks for having me again. And no words this week. He's actually here to talk about everything. Brian Roth, editor and writer at Good Beer Hunting and director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers. Brian, I hope you had a great vacation and welcome back. Thank you very much. And thank you for playing uh, advocate for my voice, uh, reading emails. Appreciate it. I'm happy to be here in person this time around. And we're happy to have you because you have all the numbers. And it is a lot of fun to hear those numbers. And last but not least, Doug Velicki, Chief Strategy Officer for Revolution Brewing and founder of BeerCruncher's.com. And as I have learned since our last show, um, while I don't technically come from Pittsburgh, I come from near Pittsburgh. Uh, he's from Pittsburgh, which is who I root for in all my teams, which is not good right now with the Pirates. But Doug, welcome back. <laughs> Thank you. I just uh, followed on TikTok. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate that. And I just posted one of our Give It a Try highlights. Uh, if you haven't, those drop every Monday night and our cocktail cookies shake things up on Fridays. Um, but we're here to talk craft beer and things in the craft beer world. Uh, but we'd like to start things off with one tough question. And of course, everyone's been watching, I'm sure, Netflix and, and the heist show. Uh, and Pappygate was one of the heist um, showcased. And I live about 30 minutes from, from Buffalo Trace. And I remember hearing the stories when I've taken the tour. But I want to know, is there a beer, and I'll even expand this out, is there just a beverage that you would pull a Pappy Gate for? Uh, one of the uh, tastiest beers I think I ever had was a regular old Budweiser pulled directly from its conditioning tank in St. Louis. And the reason I would pick that uh, is because these things are resting in plain fuselage-sized uh, fermenters. And so that's like we're talking like Ocean's 14 effort to get that out of the plant. Uh, the beer was amazing, uh, and I think just being able to have that, uh, just bury it in my, my backyard, I guess, and have that on tap for probably about five years would be a delight. I just want to see how you're going to hide that. <laughs> Right. Just one man and a shovel and a lot of effort. I think mine is uh, somewhat similar to Brian's. At first, my reaction was to like really rack my brain and think about, you know, is there a beer that's really that special? I'm usually like, and, and maybe I'm a little jaded, but uh, usually when I see lines of people lining up for a beer, I'm like, you know, there's perfectly good world-class beer sitting on the shelf that's accessible for everybody. Um, so that's my usual attitude. But uh, I do have a similar answer to Brian's in that uh, when I did the, the Tour de Goose uh, 
probably about 15 years ago now. Uh, we were drinking Lambic straight from the fooders at some pretty world famous uh, producers. Uh, you know, right from the fooders at Bone was just amazing. Um, you know, so a couple of those beers were were pretty memorable. And you know, if I had to if I had to choose one, it'd probably be one of those. Lindsay, Doug, who wants to go next? Put you on the spot. I'm trying to think. <laughs> I don't know if I can p- compete with those, but um, I don't know. I'm like thinking about this beer. It's actually pretty local from D9 Brewing. Um, it's called Bright Side of the Sun, and it's a 12% uh, sour, pretty much a wild ale with uh, white chocolate and ginger. Mm. And I remember having it maybe when I was living back in Nashville, I was working for Southern Grist. And somebody brought in a bottle and I still, it's like one of the craziest, coolest beers I've ever had. And I could probably drink it all the time, but how weird it was. I wasn't really, I don't know. I wasn't really intrigued by it. I was like, oh, this is going to be strange. And it's one of the coolest, greatest beers I've ever had. And and Doug, are you going to go for the smooge? I just had to bring it up. I just had to. <laughs> uh, no. Um, my, mine is, uh, from my favorite brewery, which is the lost Abbey in San Marcos, California, outside of San Diego. Um, it's called cable car Creek. So they make a beer once a year called cable car that, um, historically had, had only been released to a famous craft beer bar called the Toronado. Um, I think there's now three, maybe only two now Toronados. And uh, it just checks all these boxes for me where, uh, you know, I used to date my wife long distance in San Francisco, which is where the original Tornado is. When I would visit her, I'd always, she lived right by it. So we'd always go there way back in the day. That's how I kind of discovered Lost Abbey. And then this uh, Creek version, the cherry version, they only made it in 2011 and then they've never made it since. And I think they are going to make it this release it this year for the first time in 10 years. But so that original one had like a mystique to it and it checked all these boxes of it being my favorite brewery and of course was their hardest to get and had the personal <laughs> connection to San Francisco as well. So uh, that'd be the beer I would definitely uh, rob them for if uh, if there were any. See, see, for me, I, I find it hard to because like if you're thinking Pappy Gate, you know, they were trying to sell that for some some big, big money. And I just don't know if, you know, you can pull that off with, with beer. But I, I, I will say, um, you know, I've heard some whiskeys go for some nice prices, you know, go over to Scotland, take some whiskeys. Um, for, for me, there's two crazy ones. There's a, a couple sours, you know, those barrel aged sours that come in a nice, um, uh, bottle that, that I would do from uh, West six, which is a local one here in, uh, in Lexington, uh, where I'm at. And they're uh, kind of that wild ale style that, that Lindsay was talking about that just, you know, you, you only get them every so often, you know, they're kind of a special one-off. And then, uh, another one for me is a uh, slow brew. They did a taco chip beer, which is kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, they, they brewed beer with, uh, taco with chip uh, or nacho chips but without the flavor on them and it actually tasted pretty good and i kind of want that again just to show off to people because i don't think anyone believes me that i had that beer uh but but it was it was pretty good i just switched over to my computer you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) i did it (laughs) technology does work amazing (laughs) well and, and speaking of technology and the crazy things that happen nfts for those of you that have not heard of them, 
they're kind of wild. They're basically this digital collectible that uh, is, uh, Doug, you might be able to explain this better than I can. Would you like to give it a try? Because I don't think I'm going to make any sense to anyone. Sure, I'll do my best. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to skip over certain parts that wouldn't be too too deep of a rabbit hole to go down. But um, yeah, they're a, a digital asset that's built on uh, this new technology called uh, blockchain technology, which is a, an extra complex form of a database that is uh, nearly impossible to hack compared to the databases we live in now. And we hear about all the breaches going on. This is a new technology that's extra secure, but um, they also have something that's very intriguing, which is called a smart contract attached to the NFT. And what that means is you can build in a, a predetermined set of rules for this digital collectible. For example, let's say I'm an artist and I make uh, one, one painting and I, I make a digital version of it and I put it for sale. I could have a, as part of the smart contract, whoever owns this, and it wouldn't be something that nobody could copy. It would be tied back to me on the blockchain to, they would always have this authenticity element that nobody could fake, but I could put in a clause to the smart contract that comes with it, that if that person resells it, which they're welcome to, uh, 10% of what they get, and I'm making up 10%, it could be anything, comes back to me as the original creator. So if this thing appreciates in value and keeps trading hands, every time it does, Myself as the original as the original artist um, gets a cut every time, and everybody knows that going in. And the people that are into this do this in a way to support the creators of um, whatever this uh, digital collectible might be. So um, that's kind of a simple uh, explanation. And much you better. Explain why they're called non fungible tokens. Uh, it wasn't the best. It probably wasn't a marketing person that came. Why it's so fun that. to say? Yeah, fun, fungible makes me think of a mushroom. <laughs> uh, not not the best name, uh, and I think that's why it's been shortened to NFTs. And I think it'll eventually just be NFTs, and it won't matter what it stands for. Uh, but but you can find these you know, NBA players, a lot of athletes, artists, as Doug mentioned. A lot of big money there, maybe at the beginning of the year, kind of slowed down a little bit, but I've started to see wine companies do this. Uh, we've actually, I think, had one or two that have done that. Would you, though, buy an NFT of a beer? Because this kind of goes back to that first question of, of uh, you know, what would you uh, pull off a heist for? Would you be willing to purchase an NFT of your favorite beer? I, I If you don't mind, because I can uh, loop my answer into like a, a further explanation of why these, I think, have a lot of potential in mm -hmm. the future. So I'll use my example of what my, the beer I would do a heist for, um, Lost Abbey's Cable Car Creek. Let's say that the Lost Abbey decided to take that original artwork of the uh, painting of a cable car that's on this bottle, turn that into an NFT, which somebody immediately would say, who's a naysayer would say, well, I could just go to Google images and print that out. Why would I pay money for it? But the idea is that the, if the Lost Abbey and, and maybe in, in conjunction with the original artist created this NFT of it, that NFT would probably come with some other kind of benefit, ideally something that money can't buy. So let's say that as the owner of the Cable Car Creek NFT, every time Cable Car comes out, you're guaranteed an allotment of three of this rare beer that normally only one, uh, each person can only buy one of, and it sells out in a day. 
but as an owner of one of these NFTs, you get this kind of special access. And then maybe you also get a once a year um, Zoom tasting with the founder or the head brewer to drink through one of the bottles. And whoever's the holder of this NFT token gets that special access and special privilege along with it. And that's where I think the real potential with these four um, could be um, in the alcohol space and in the beer space, space. It's a stretch. I think it's a ways away. But so this is, but this is an example of like how it could happen and not be this crazy thing where it's like, well, why would I do that? I could just print out this uh, file or save the file to my computer. It's not really about that. It's about the rarity of it and the privileges that could come along with it. So I, I have a question about uh, about this that you might be able to answer, Doug, because one of the things that occurred to me with uh, with that question is, uh, you know, the NFT uh, basically said it it confers ownership of something to someone, and because it's tied to blockchain technology, it's really difficult, if not impossible, to kind of forge that. Um, and so, you know, it belongs to you definitely because you have the code for that NFT. Uh, can you tie that to a physical thing? Is there like a code or something that would go physically on that bottle of beer that would tie that specifically to a producer? And what I'm getting at is I'm reminded of a story that I saw last year at some point, and it's probably popped up a few times. And I know it has in the wine world too, where people are making forgeries of famous beers and wines where they'll mimic the label and they'll just kind of throw a bunch of stuff into a bottle and package it up and make it look like the something that sells for a lot of money and then sell this forgery. So would this NFT give somebody the ability or, or a brewer the ability to, to say, this is the genuine article? Yeah, what, what a lot of um, artists are doing now, like let's say you make a, a paint, you're a famous artist, you live in New York City and you're uh, having, you have a studio and you're selling a very expensive painting because your artwork demands it. What they're doing right now is selling the physical painting, but then you also get the NFT of it with it. And then in theory, you'd never want to buy that painting off somebody which is known to have come with an NFT version unless you're also getting the NFT with it. So it's almost like a cert certificate of authenticity, but in the digital world that comes along with it that kind of proves and helps track the chain of custody of something that's more of a physical ob object. And I think with the wine example that Jonathan shared in the article, I think they used some kind of barcode uh, or uh, like a QR code on the bottle. Uh, I can't explain exactly how this works in terms of proving authenticity, but they, they, they kind of addressed it as something that they would put on the physical bottle that links back to the NFT itself. That, that helps prevent the ability for it to be faked. Yeah, and, I, and the other benefit I could see is, is if you did tie that in with that, uh, as beers end up going through the secondary market, maybe once or twice or whatever, the, you, know, you could potentially have uh, the owner or the brewer receiving benefits from that. I don't know if that's a possibility either. Yeah, no, it is. I mean, beer won't be legal to sell on the secondary <laughs> market ever. So I don't know how, how that part would work. But uh, yeah, you, but you do the chain of custody is a public thing, not the 
name and physical address of the person that owned it, but you can see there this, these things called digital wallets where you um, store these. The easiest example, if anybody's ever used Apple Wallet for like a ticket stub, that's how I get into like a Chicago White Sox game. Now I get the ticket in my Apple Wallet. Uh, an NFT can work kind of similar, but you can see how many times it changed place. And like, you probably wouldn't want a barrel aged out that's changed hands 12 times <laughs> before you get it. And that certainly uh, happens and has happened before. Yeah. Does this change an aspect of the, like the democratization of beverage alcohol in a way? Like if we look at it from this perspective of, the variety of options that exist now are wider and more, more varied than ever, opening up all these kinds of experience, flavor experiences and beverages for so many people. Like this, and Doug, I'm thankful that you're here to kind of break this down because this is the first time beyond making jokes about non-fungible tokens as three <laughs> words that are put together in sequence. Um, it does like, I, I find it really interesting as it's like, it's another aspect that can be powerful, but also has this kind of devil's advocate side to it because there is, there's the literal part of gatekeeping that comes along with it. And for those who would find these most valuable personally, or the businesses that could use it, like there's a very practical real world aspect, uh, money goes to artists, money goes to the people who created it but still effectively makes those unique special experiences or opportunities still to a select number of people. Not to poo-poo what this natural evolution of the technology is, but so much as I think when we talk about experiential goods and the way that we want to try to have those be available to as many people as possible, the specialty of what this brings with it inherently kind of levels up that kind of uh, beer trading uh, atmosphere community that we've experienced so far into an entirely different way. Yeah, I, th I think craft beer would be very sensitive to it, and I think it would come down to what the how the brewery goes about it, and if they go about it, of course that this is for charity. You know, mm -hmm. I've I've done charity auctions where I raffled off a special access to something at Revolution that was more of just a one-time thing, not this ongoing contract. But uh, you know, whoever paid the most got to have this cool experience, and then all the money went to the local children's hospital. Mm -hmm. um, nobody's going to complain about that. Um, and then there's other, there's other levels where it could be more like, um, you know, artwork is so uh, important to craft beer, and you know, are the art all are all artists paid fairly? Probably not. Maybe this could be done as a way to add to for breweries to say hey we we make so many labels we cannot afford to pay you know the x thousand dollars per label but we this person is so talented they deserve it maybe we're gonna create in partnership with them uh a one nft of every beer label we do and then the collectors out there who just love the art and love the idea that they would own the only one of these or maybe you make it one of five and then, and then there's five out there it's just this other collectible thing. And it's kind of the way things are going that I know are hard to, for some people to wrap their head around. But I think there would be people interested in that. And again, if you sell it as like, this isn't just the brewery trying to maximize profits because there's this other thing we could be selling. We're not trying to put more money in our pocket. We're trying to 
you know, uh, help our artists, uh, you know, make a better living as a result. And so there's another way you could spend it. And then you could go on and on with other um, ways. Those, those are two that come to mind as a, as a way to present it that probably would go over pretty well. Lindsay? Yeah, I mean, I, as a consumer and also very much in the brewery marketing aspect, um, I see a huge value in that. Um, every every craft beer drinker, I mean, obviously has a favorite brewery um, that they either follow or look out for specific releases every year. I mean, for me, I, I know I fangirl about a few different breweries. I'm a huge Belgian fan. Um, so delirium is kind of like one of those for me. Like if I had one of those tokens, I mean, that would be the coolest thing in the world. Um, and I know people do, you know, bottle shares, even doing like a vertical, you get like the same beer that's barrel aged year after year after year. And all of a sudden somebody comes in with 10 of them. I mean, imagine that with just like labels and having these special tokens for people to have a piece of a brewery that nobody else has. Everyone wants to feel valuable and special in the brewery's eyes why not give them this opportunity to do that? So I, I would see it happening sooner rather than later, to be honest. <laughs> hey, hey, Lindsay, I'm curious as someone who is like exists in that marketing space and thinks about that all the time, uh, I, I, pardon me for putting you on the spot, but it, like, I think you raise a really great point. Um, and I'm curious, like when you've either, you know, with businesses that, you know, or worked with or peers, like something unique and different happened in the marketing space for beer. Like when was the last time that you think you heard about or experienced something that felt unique and new, kind of like what we're talking about now? Yeah. I mean, I would say the first thing that they'll jump out was me, uh, was last year with the black is beautiful. Um, that was something that now, because it's going to be happening again this year, people, I mean, have been messaging me and asking me like, where can I get this? Where can I get this? And last year it's like, you know, every beer had their own rendition and I was lucky enough, um, to be able to go to a bottle share and try a different, you know, variety of them from local to national levels. Um, but I feel like that's something that if they're, you know, whether it's souls in Texas, if they were coming up with something very unique for that black is beautiful collab and their different rendition, I feel like people would go crazy for it. So something like that, uh, locally court shoes only for our queen city, uh, beer fest that we didn't have happen last year. Um, every brewery pretty much in Charlotte had a double IPA rendition of it. And a lot of Charlotte beer people were bouncing from brewery to brewery, trying these double IPAs just so they can check off all of them or, you know, complete their bingo board, I guess. But people are into that kind of stuff, whether it's a scavenger hunt or, you know, collect them all or, you know, even with artwork, like you said, with labels. I mean, I know when I just like post like really pretty beer cans with a really pretty label, people go crazy over it and they don't even care what it says. That's like pulling a beer off of a shelf. You don't even see what the label says or what it is. You're like, that's beautiful. I need it. It's instant. <laughs> now, and you guys bring up some, some good points that I didn't even think of when I, I, I posed this question, but it really could be a, a cool way to get to experience the craft beer world and, and have something that is yours. And uh, never even thought of the beer can art because that is a huge thing on social media and, and even just the charity side, which you know breweries um, are, are very well known for as being part of the community. Uh, that could go uh, so many uh, different ways. And, and, uh, and, and Doug, I feel like Revolution, you you're, might be pitching this at, at the next meeting. 
<laughs> yeah, I would like to point out that we just created a marketing plan. So thank you, Doug, <laughs> for the lift there. Craft breweries aren't the fastest to evolve to uh, new technologies. Um, you know, we've seen, uh, I joked about TikTok earlier, but uh, like every brand and every industry is on TikTok right now, except craft breweries. Uh, I'm not saying none are some. some I will say I I actually know a lot of Charlotte ones that their their videos have gone to a million to half a million viral because yeah. dunk, putting donuts in it or you know having something explode. It's I was I was hoping it went to a million for a better reason. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you're, not, you're not helping, Lindsay. I've seen, well, I mean, I've seen some that's like the so like one of the local ones here. They did a collab with Krispy Kreme. And it's literally a like a whole Krispy Kreme box being like just dunked into the tank, and Krispy Kreme reposted it, and so the TikTok went sky That's high. Awesome. <laughs> Very cool. <laughs> now, now uh, we can keep talking about NFTs, but I have a couple other questions, and and this is an interesting one too because we've talked a lot about seltzers uh, on the craft beer roundtable because they just seem to be infiltrating um, uh, everywhere. Um, even Doug's, uh, you know, uh, refrigerator now. Uh, but, but, uh, this came, this happened. A lot of the questions come from where I'm from now in Kentucky. And I just saw, uh, there's a, a group that's looking to build a seltzery, um, kind of at a beer hall type place or food hall type place. And I'm curious, I'm like, we've talked about this. We've talked about the cans being the big thing for seltzers. You know, would they work on tap? Well, we think maybe cans would be better because that's where they push all their marketing. They want, that, that brand identity, that, that lifestyle. Do you all see seltzeries ever becoming a thing or do you see maybe more brand extensions? You know, like just about every brewery now does maybe a seltzer uh, because obviously you want to have something for everyone. Um, what, what, what say all of you? Can I chime in first? Go for it. We actually have a seltzer here in Charlotte. <laughs> um, so it's called Summit Seltzer opened up last year. And I think it was, it's considered the first on the East coast. Um, so the impact I would say that this seltzery is having, obviously you can go there, you can get all these different seltzers. They make seltzer jello shots, cocktails, what have you, is that every, I'm not saying every brewery, probably the majority of breweries in Charlotte, which is about 60 now, um, uh, most of them, if not all have summit seltzer on draft because it's such a high demand here because Charlotte is such a high fitness oriented. So a lot of people either gluten reduced, gluten free, um, or they're active, they're in a gym, they're biking, they're doing, you know, the part of a brewery run club. Um, they always need a seltzer option. So this seltzery is now in pretty much every brewery locally, and they're getting a lot of traction that way. Um, and I've worked for a brewery that they have their own in the past, um, their own seltzer brand, and they have that in the grocery stores as well. Um, and it's kind of like kickstarted a lot with them, even though it's a different brand. I mean, I've seen it do really well. But the real question is, is it going to continue to keep going up or is it kind of like be stagnant, I would say. Lindsay, one of the things uh, that's come up in conversation with uh, retailers, uh, on-premise retailers that I've talked to, as well as producers, talking about this next phase of uh, so bars, restaurants, on-premise, like the, the presentation of seltzer, what happens when you go and order it and for the first time someone's seeing it, you know, poured from a tap, for example. 
And that seems to be the one thing that uh, a lot of these people have focused on as trying to figure out the best way to make it this fun experience. And you get, so you give a couple of good examples there, the jello shots, uh, and not just in the glass. What have you seen at, at Summit or other places in terms of what's made it work as something that gets poured into glass, whether it's coloring or the physical form that it's in or anything like that. Yeah. So I would say outside of the seltzer, because they do, I mean, they dress it up to make it, whether, you know, it's the, the color of it, you know, it's a pretty pink or red or purple or yellow. Um, but I would say the last brewery I worked at, um, was Catawba Brewing here in Charlotte as well. Um, we even focused on, uh, the branding is Twisp and we did, uh, Twisp cocktails. So we had a, um, organic kind of like juice concentrate out of Asheville and we joined it with the seltzer to kind of make it a more like vibrant experience because as everyone jokes with, like with the seltzer base, um, it's kind of like you have that like TV static in your mouth and it's somebody shouting across the room, the flavor, and that's how you taste it. <laughs> so I've seen it. Like we got like the highball glasses with like the branding and the flight boards. Um, so I've seen some breweries do that where they kind of go all out and try to make it a cocktail experience, uh, providing, unique recipes for people to do it at home. They just grab, you know, the variety pack and take it home. Um, or they just have it on draft and just kind of create their own rendition of it. Um, I know like the one, the branding that stands out most to me is evil twin up in New York. Um, Cause they do like marshmallow and like vanilla in there. They kind of do like these, like, you know, smoothie seltzers. Um, and I think that branding is, is genius. But um, I would say majority of them, they just kind of, if they're making their own, they kind of just have a very unique name, uh, whether it's Bubs with Sycamore, Brizzo with Noda. Um, they kind of have like a fun little quirky marketing plan. Um, Sycamore even did a whole Instagram post. Um, it's just 77. And they made it look like it was a new apartment complex opening um, with 77 billboards across the entire city. And weeks later, they announced it was just the amount of calories that were in a single can of bub seltzer. So I've seen it from that's probably the craziest marketing I've seen to it just being like, hey, we made our own seltzer. Come try it. The end. So it's been interesting to see like the kind of range that people are going to make this work for them. And, and Brian, for, for you, you, you've looked at the numbers. What, what do the numbers yeah, say? Neil Oh, sorry. Uh, well, so here, one of the really fascinating things uh, is thinking about about the monster that the categories are. So that's chain sales and grace convenience and big box stores, things like that. A as a category, uh, hard seltzer is collectively roughly the size of Bud Light in those stores, uh, Bud Light being the number one brand in the country. Um, about halfway through, so uh, through six months of the year is about $3 billion. Uh, and so the whole goal uh, now is trying to translate that success into what happens in bars and restaurants. Uh, that was supposed to take place last year. Truly was planning this big run up to try to, to uh, showcase the draft offering and make truly something that isn't just at home but in bars too. Uh, and so that's just starting to happen uh, here uh, around me in North Carolina. Uh, one of the fascinating things I think that's come up in conversation and trying to take that uh, package grocery store experience and the success there into bars and restaurants 
has been the recognition of what Lindsay was just talking about is the connection it can have to cocktails, whether as a mixer or just as some kind of connective flavor experience. Uh, a really great example, um, hands up if you've heard of ranch water, uh, hands up if you heard of ranch water 18 months ago, uh, which a lot of people didn't. Um, and so ranch water is a cocktail from Texas, Topo Chico tequila lime, which is now uh, in from a lot of companies being turned into a seltzer, a malt based seltzer, but mimicking a ranch water cocktail. Uh, one uh, point of marketing that came up recently in conversations that because not many people are familiar with a ranch water uh, cocktail or cocktail itself or the seltzer is that this retail chain is doing both of them. So they are trying to serve the, uh, the canned cocktail version of ranch water, but on the menu also have the regular tequila topo chico lime cocktail actually prepared. So that way you have a point of reference on the menu. The bartender has a conversation they can have with you. And it's ways like that that can turn the seltzer experience from home into something new and different when you're out with family or friends. Neil, can I ask you what the challenges might be when it comes to serving this kind of stuff on tap? <laughs> um, well, uh, a couple things. It depends on how highly carbonated you want this to be. Pouring highly carbonated uh, beverages on draft can be really difficult. Um, and the other is uh, how much flavoring there is because uh, fruit flavoring and things like that have a potential to flavor stain lines. So uh, there is some concern, although uh, with most seltzers, the flavor is, uh, is not really, you know, not really the main selling point. Uh, I mean, it is, but the flavors are very simplistic, right? And this kind of like, this is what always keeps coming back to me. I mean, I, I, I get seltzer. I, I don't drink it a lot myself, but when it's in my fridge, I, you know, I understand the occasion. There are times where I'm like, I don't, I'm not in the mood for a beer. I'm not in the mood for something else. Oh, you know, this really kind of hits the spot. I get that. Um, the, the seltzer thing, I, I can see somebody making a go. And I think Lindsay, you described kind of that perfect scenario where you've got this seltzery that is doing a really good business and it had, and it's found that spot in the community and people have embraced that. But, you know, when I go to certain parts of different cities and I see, you know, a row of breweries or in your neighborhood where you walk down three blocks and you've got like five or six different breweries and they all have completely different offerings. I just can't see or have a very difficult time envisioning Seltzeries becoming something like that, where you know, the, the flavor proposition is very simple and is really not the main selling point because the, the, they're supposed to be incredibly light and delicately flavored and not really complex. Complexity isn't really the thing that, that at least from what I understand, what they're going for. It's like, okay, we've got the raspberry seltzer or the black cherry seltzer or the marshmallow seltzer or whatever, I, you know, I, I'm trying to envision enough distinction between different seltzers that we could have that type of variety. So, I, I mean, I, and so that kind of makes me think that this is going to stay more of what you characterize, Jonathan, as the brand extension 
uh, as opposed to, you know, really proliferating uh, on its own as, as, a, as the seltzery business, that there's going to be seltzeries all over the place. I could see them popping up and, and making a go of it and, and having a sustainable business, but not on the level that you see breweries, for sure. Yeah, I'm going to join Neil uh, as, a, as a hater on the seltzeria. Um, so, I mean, I, I just, I, for a lot of the same reasons, I might use different uh, terms, but like to me, seltzers don't have an experience like, like beer. I don't think there's a romance to the process of making a seltzer that makes people want to drink it at the source or care at all about the idea of drinking it at the source. So um, it's, it's lacking that. Now, if this seltzeria is also like, uh, you know, has shuffleboard courts or, uh, you know, mini golf or some kind of other experience driven thing, and they make their 12 different flavors of seltzer around the, the cool brand that they have, but there's this other reason to go there, then absolutely could one, uh, you know, in an area be successful, sure. But I, I don't see it being this thing that in, in any way resembles brewery tap rooms other than maybe a few one-off successes here and there. Sure. But yeah, I feel like it needs something else than just, you know, try, you know, this come get them at the source. Um, there is, um, th this is wholly anecdotal and not evidence-based, but one thing that I think of is just the time, like butt-in seat time that when I drink a seltzer or a hard alcoholic seltzer, one of the things that I often find myself doing because I have muscle memory of drinking just regular old non-alcoholic seltzer during the day is I get in the routine because of the flavor because you can't taste the alcohol in the same way is, you know, I have to mentally think of myself, uh, you know, slow, slow down. You don't need to drink that as fast as you normally would. If you're, if you're at a brewery tap room and you are experiencing, you know, whatever different flavors of the beer, to me, in my own experience, there's a slowdown to it. Uh, whether you're with friends or by yourself, like the actual flavor of the thing, you physically experience it in a different way. And so, you know, you can go hammer three seltzers in a couple of minutes in theory. Uh, you could do the same with beer. Um, but I think when it comes to that actual like taproom experience, there is that extension of what you're doing, the time you spend, and that matters both in money and value to people too. Yeah. Brian, I, I don't think you were on the last time when we were talking about does hard seltzer make sense on draft. And, uh, the first thing that came to mind, came to mind for me was like, if you're a white cloth fan, just how awkward it would be being held, a, being handed a glass of clear liquid, because I feel like if you're a White Cloth fan, you want that can in your hand. Mm -hmm. and there's just something about it that that's what you want. So that's why I was negative toward it. Not that they can't do well at bars, but I feel like people want the can not to be holding a clear glass while standing in a circle of friends chatting. You want the White Cloth can. So... Yeah, no, 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 I, I think you're you're right on that. That that would be one where you're pulling out the can out of the cooler, um, more so than maybe on on tab. Now, to, to Lindsay's point, though, I could see a a seltzery and to, to, to Neil and others, you know, a one off here in a city. Um, although I find it very interesting, though, that I think a lot of the big seltzer brands are from a brewery. You know, you, even here in Kentucky, one of the big ones is Vive, and they're based at, out of Braxton, uh, brewing up in northern Kentucky. 
uh, you know, truly. And, and a lot of them are based out of Sam, Samuel Adams or someone else that, that got smart and started early on the seltzer trend. So, um, you know, I, and none of them are, are, are turning a, a brewery spot into a seltzery, but they might have a few of those uh, in, in the fridge for folks to enjoy. Yeah. One of my favorites is actually Wild Basin and that's Oscar Blues. I mean, them having, you know, two massive production facilities for that. And I've seen it. I mean, I've been in Colorado and I've had it. I've had it here. It's in every grocery store. I mean, the, the distro and the space that they have in grocery stores is pretty impressive as well. Yeah, and and I, I was going to say, that's another good point. The distribution. Yeah, when, when we finally in Illinois got the ability to just have another uh, brewery or cider, uh, cideries, cider on tap, um, we couldn't believe how much of it we sold. Not because people came to us to have this cider, but just because how many people come in a big group don't really like beer and see an alternative to beer, whether that's a, a hard seltzer the brewery makes, or in our case, it's just a, a, a cool cidery up the street that we dedicate one of our draft lines to having theirs on. And the amount of that we sell is staggering. And again, I think it's the people that come for a birthday party at, at our tap room and just don't like beer, but they're there for the party and they see that other option and they're all over it. So that's what another... Uh, great reason to have be able to have uh, hard seltzers at a brewery. I have drank at a seltzery before, San Juan Seltzery in Seattle, Washington, uh, two years ago. They sell boatloads uh, in stores, but it was like I was there with a couple of people and they had something like 16 taps of different seltzers. And again, like this is my own experience, different from others, but they got to a point we got, you know, flights so we could have something of everything. And it got to a point where I was just like, I just need something different. Like the repetitive nature of the um, uh, artificial flavor of it uh, just became far too much. Uh, and so while it's a thing for some people, absolutely. I think it's just, it's when we're, tr when we've had the experience in a bar or a restaurant, or even more so the last few years, as more people who are, are, and are not beer fans spend time in brewery tap rooms. I think there is some of that lived experience that comes to matter a little bit that I think if you do open a business that is centered and focused on seltzer only, like you have to try to figure out ways to round the corners a little bit to make it enticing in ways that people of all ages and demographics have come to experience from, you know, whether it's a brewery tap room or a vineyard tap room or something like that. Uh, that that's a very good point. Got to have something for everyone. Now, before we, we, we hopped on, uh, Brian, you were talking about some, some brands that were going away from, from cores um, that you, you wanted to pour one out. I don't know if you want to take the time now to, to do that, uh, but it leads me to my next question. Um, you know, I, I believe uh, Budweiser has a new uh, chief officer. Um, you know, they went, all these big companies went on some buying sprees there for a while. It's kind of slowed down a little bit, or at least now there's more partnerships that I, I see, you know, with like Dogfish Head and Sam Adams and, and, or Boston beer and things like that happening. Do you ever see, do you guys ever see the big boys going on another buying spree or do we see more maybe collaborations, even, you know, Yingling and I believe cores to get distribution and production out West. Um, what, what are we, we thinking is going to be the next thing for, for the big boys. Here's one thing that came to mind when I was thinking about that question uh, and Doug, I'm going to kick it over to you because I immediately thought of, you know, 
10 years ago when this kind of, this started, I guess, 2011 with Goose Island, you know, there was this five or six year period where AB InBev and then Molson Coors got involved in, in buying up craft breweries. There was this often repeated refrain of how they were coming after craft beer. But I think both the way that those uh, companies have changed and uh, experienced failures in a way. Doug, I'm curious if whether or not M&A action takes place, do you get a sense in industry if there is a feeling of any kind of threat, maybe like it was when this is a new idea of these comp- large companies going on buying sprees 10 years ago? Yeah, I was racking my brain on this question because I, I don't know. Um, w- w- when when the original buying spree happened, these craft breweries were being brought uh, purchased so that they could become a craft horse that the the big brand, uh, the big brewery could take nationwide. And then all of a sudden, uh, local breweries started popping up everywhere. Now that we're in 2013, 2014, 2015. And then all of a sudden it was like, well, maybe we won't take these national, we'll go regional. And then we'll start filling out the country with regions. Then all of a sudden the regional play became less and less value valuable as beer became like hyper-local and there were breweries like everywhere on every street corner, not just every city has a brewery, but every city has a brewery in every neighborhood, if not multiple. And now, so now the, um, I think they become less valuable in that sense because the ability to grow them is very limited. Now there's of course going to be special breweries out there, you know, a, a select few that could be the exception that do have the reputation to go from being this local small brewery that they could buy and turn into like a regional um, powerhouse. That, I, I do still believe that can happen, but those are the exceptions, not the rules. So um, I don't see that being like this becoming a huge trend. Um, I think AB kind of learned their lesson and has their hands full with what still with what they originally bought. Miller's never really been too interested. They buy you know, ones that have always been, uh, strange to me, but, um, you know, they, they don't seem too aggressive with getting into craft. Um, I think what's going to be huge is these, not just these alternative alternatives, but ones that are linked to celebrities with mass social media appeal. Uh, I, I think what that's just, just beginning and and every, you know, famous athlete's going to want to have one of these famous singers. It's going to be like, why not? Um, those are becoming a thing. So, um, but back to your question, um, my bet is no in terms of the big, the big ones, but I do think there's foreign money that does want to play in the space here. And that's where I, I'd be more likely like, so when the new Belgium acquisition happened, um, that was a, um, Japanese company, um, I believe that bought them here yeah, that, so that made sense to me because of what where that brewery is, and what they you know what their presence was like in the U.S. to have a brewery like New Belgium, um, in the U.S. compared to what else they had. That made sense, and I think there's other players out there like them, but less so the constellations Anheuser Busch and um, and Miller Coors World. Um, so I'd be a little surprised if any of those that big three went on some kind of craft beer spending spree. I don't, I don't see it, but I could be wrong. There, there I, don't, two, I don't think, yeah, go ahead, Brian. I would say there, I think that, so there are two really big uh, 
like right now news stories that make a difference in this broader conversation. The first is when, as we're talking, it's like two weeks ago, as part of a broader executive order to investigate business practices in a host of industries, uh, President Joe Biden included a specific reference to beverage alcohol. Um, and AB InBev, going back to its uh, merger four years ago with SAB Miller, um, was under Department of Justice um, confirmation. Uh, and as part of that congressional hearing, also it required them at the time to go through Congress to get approval for further acquisitions within the space. And so I think, you know, drawing a line in the last four years uh, from that, uh, some of the challenges that AB has um, faced that Doug was mentioning in terms of their ability to maybe figure out what they're supposed to be doing uh, in a smart way with these brands. Um, so I think the, the, uh, the fact that the government now has within its scope is looking at business practices as it relates to distribution and production. That's one thing. Uh, the other thing is I, when I think about M&A and these large multinational companies, I'm thinking about cannabis. Uh, I'm thinking about marijuana and what happens in the future on a state level. Uh, obviously, there's a lot going on at the federal level right now. Um, AB InBev, Molson Coors, Constellation, Canada is a playground right now in terms of trying to figure out what does and does not work. Uh, I've long seen it as something of a waiting game. Constellation just this week hired their first cannabis lobbyist as well. Uh, and they have uh, a stake in a Canadian company, uh, the largest in the world, Canopy, I believe. Uh, and so M&A, I think it's this beyond beverage space, uh, and that doesn't just mean uh, you know, seltzer or wine or spirits. Uh, I think the way that whether it's CBD or THC, uh, M&A related to that beyond beer, I think will really matter in the years to come. Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, you uh, pretty much made the point that I was going to make about ABI probably not even being able to purchase anything else in the States, even if they wanted to, uh, because of everything they had to do with that, uh, you know, with the, uh, with the, uh, with the SAB Miller deal. I mean, they had to divest of a whole bunch of stuff. So, I mean, they're not going to be picking anything up anytime soon. Um, I think, you know, uh, Doug, to Doug's point, I think we're going to see if anything, if any big breweries are going to be getting involved, it's going to be something overseas. Um, and, you know, I think the most of what you're going to see, if anything, is going to be more of the kind of small to mid-sized breweries kind of joining forces uh, to, to try and make a regional play. Um, that's, I, you know, I think that's going to be more of the kind of M&A stuff that we see here domestically. Um, you know, that and I think, you know, that the the cannabis space is a is a real wild card there you know at face value i mean there's no way anybody's gonna you know there's no way that the government would let anyone make an alcoholic beverage with thc in it uh, but there's still a ton of potential in in and around that to make beverages so um yeah i think there's a lot of potential there too one thing that I think would be interesting, and I don't know that this would, there's enough uh, meat on the bone here, but you know, the, 
last time around they they were buying breweries that were like call it 50 to 75,000 barrels with dreams of turning these into I'll make up a number 300,000 400,000 barrel breweries and there was and that growth is what made them willing to pay a high price to these craft brewery owners because they saw that amount of growth that once they put these breweries into their system through their distribution they could ignite uh, sales for them um, but what would be interesting is if you know a lot of the big regional breweries already have the share of these large distributors who can get who are, and they're already in all the big box stores. Could they get more by having that weight behind them? Yes, but I think it's like limited how much more versus like if they really went after some cool, small, you know, 5,000, 10,000 barrel breweries where, and really turn them into 75,000 barrel breweries, they could do that and they could do that fast. Would it work? Uh, maybe sometimes yes, probably other times no, but, um, that's kind of what I've wanted to see. Like I noticed in Anheuser-Busch's last acquisition, which was a, an Ohio brewery called Brian, do you remember their name? Platform. Platform. That was, I think by far the smallest. And that intrigued me because I had always been wondering what I just said, if they would ever like go smaller because there's more room to run with it. And that's what they did there. And um, I think that one has actually gone well for them. Um, here's, here's the wild thing, Doug. Platform produced almost the same amount of beer last year in 2020 as they did three years prior. And I understand some of that's, you know, potentially pandemic related. Uh, but it was really interesting with them because it was both uh, Ohio based and then they had opened up, I think, a brew pub in Pennsylvania as well. And it was often the case we're thinking about there's that physical location experience that you can kind of build out and try to play elsewhere. Uh, and it's strange because after that acquisition, I, I couldn't tell you if I've heard much about platform in the last 16, 18 months. I had never heard of them before the acquisition. I've heard about them more after, but uh, do you, are you sure that none of that is from it being brewed elsewhere? Like some of their flagship beers being brewed somewhere else? So the uh, production data reported by the Brewers Association had them at uh, a little over 22,000 barrels last year. Uh, and then that would have been in 2018, about 20,000, I think. One thing, uh, Lindsay, fellow North Carolinian, that I've always been interested in is watching what happened with Wicked Weed uh, after the acquisition. Because like they've grown very fast, but I feel like what's happened with that brand, uh, the kind of beers that they make, the how often I see them and where I see them in grocery stores has changed quite a lot. So, I mean, you're you're a, a couple hours away from me. I'm in Durham. You're over in Charlotte. What's what what's the general impression of what's happened with Wicked Weed near you? Um, I mean, I'll kind of say like the way I see it. I mean, this is just my opinion. Uh, so if they watch it, whatever. Um, I actually was there two days prior before they sold. So I bought maybe like $300 worth of stuff. I was like so excited because I was living in Nashville, Tennessee at the time. And it was my first time visiting Asheville. And I remember I just like freaked out and bought so much stuff. I still have like the flight with like the little, you know, little uh, glasses and everything. Um, after that, I mean, I see it from like so many different angles because as somebody who works 
like knows people that work in breweries that have sold, um, they get more benefits, they have more resources, more money. Um, I mean, working at a brewery like that, I can see why it's very beneficial. Um, as a consumer being in Asheville, their Funkatorium is, I mean, I hate to say it, it's beautiful. I had the best experience there. It is, there's so much, I mean, I can tell there's so much money that goes into it between the glassware and the seating. And I mean, just, just the, I mean, like this, when you just look at the road and you're like, oh my gosh, what is that? It's gorgeous. Um, but of course, as a consumer, I don't want to support it. And even, even from a political standpoint, I'm not sure if anyone heard about that. I mean, I won't go into it, but even from a political standpoint, their owners supported a candidate uh, for North Carolina that a lot of beer drinkers did not agree with. So a lot of people also got upset with that. So it's kind of like, it was kind of like just one thing after another with Wicked Weed. Um, but as far as Charlotte drinkers concerned, no, we do not. We do not drink Wicked Weed. Case in point. <laughs> just simple put it. Yeah, we don't really, we don't really mess with it. There's so many other options that we can go with. I mean, Sierra Nevada, uh, Burial. I mean, if we're going to go to Asheville, Burial is even coming to Charlotte. So we have so many other options these days that that's one that, you know, you go there if you want to bring people in Asheville or just go just to experience it one time and be done. But that's the extent of it for me. <laughs> but that's, that's very interesting. And I always wonder what happens when these go national and they lose that nice little logo uh, on the can. If, if, you know, some, some people are diehards that they will not support them. Others are still good to do it. Um, but it's always interesting what happens once they get uh, picked up by the big boys. Yeah. Now, my last question uh, to finish off the night, craft breweries and food. Um, I've thought of this a lot because a couple of my favorite breweries that I go to have kind of done a few different things. Is it better to have a consistent kind of restaurant or at least food option or um, food truck just, you know, popping up? Because uh, I, I know the problem with food trucks is, you know, they can be kind of, you're at the whim of them if they, something comes up and people are looking forward to them and then you got to explain why they're not there. Uh, whereas if you have at least in-house, you, you have that, but again, in-house, some are built for brew pubs. Um, some are not. So uh, what, what does everyone think on craft beer and food? Are you asking as a customer or as a, like a, someone running the business? Um, for both <laughs> for you both. <laughs> I love it as a customer. Um, having a kitchen is hard as hell um, uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, you know, it's ex it's it's expensive finding and maintaining uh, people who want to work in kitchens is is hard. Um, I, I find that like a simplified model serving model works best versus like we have a a full on restaurant with you know host servers bartenders. Uh, dishwashers, line cooks, chef, uh, all of the above. And it's a, a lot of variables and it's one of the biggest challenges, especially it's amplified right now where we have a major uh, labor shortage. I'm guessing it's like that everywhere, but it certainly is in Chicago. So it's, uh, it's really tough, but it's, it was tough before, before all this. Um, There's just a lot of moving pieces to having like a full on brew pub. So uh, hats off to anybody who's done it. We're, uh, uh, we wouldn't want to do it any other way. But, uh, you know, if it was me starting my own brewery, I would, <laughs> the last thing I would want is to have a full-on <laughs> restaurant. I'd want to, 
I'd want to have, I'd gladly let someone else bring food trucks. Or if I wanted to have food, it would be as like, you know, you get a number at a table, um, that kind of service model. So just to, you know, simplify. I'm going to give a shout out um, to a colleague of all of ours, uh, Jen Blair. She is a writer, uh, beer educator, uh, judge, uh, a wonderful human being. She uh, So in addition to my work as an editor with Good Beer Hunting, I also function as director of the North American Guild of Beer Writers. And Jen was one of our recipients of uh, the Diversity in Beer Writing Grant series, uh, which uh, enables uh, a broader array of stories to talk about and share uh, ideas behind uh, diversity, equity, inclusion that's taking place in beer. She wrote a story about how uh, vegan and vegetarian food, uh, namely through food trucks uh, and brew pubs, can help bring more people to the tap room. Um, if you look at vegan and vegetarian communities, this is in Jen's reporting. Uh, she cites that they typically over-index toward BIPOC communities, uh, which also happen to be people who historically have been left out of the conversation and feeling welcome in a lot of the spaces that we so often find ourselves in, in brewery tap rooms. And so when I think about ways that can create a more inclusive and welcoming space, food, you know, in any occasion, in any atmosphere, is one easy and really great way to make somebody feel welcome and at home. Uh, and so one of the things I, I thought that was great about her story that she wrote as part of that series and the people she talked to and the national statistics that she cited was how just simply finding an alternative food uh, that focuses on something like veganism or vegetarian options has that opportunity to bring in people to that food truck, then of course, naturally your business too, uh, who might not have come otherwise. Yeah, I think that's a good, that's a great uh, point that uh, is kind of an advantage of having that food truck model is, is you can bring in different types of food all the time, right? Uh, and appeal to different crowds uh, and bring in a wider variety of people. Um, you know, uh, if you, you know, if you have a restaurant, uh, there's certain advantages to having a restaurant and having it all in house. Um, but uh, there's certain disadvantages too. And, you know, uh, and I guess it hadn't occurred to me until you said that, that that variety is a really, uh, is a really neat thing to be able to just have a different food truck pull up at different times. Uh, but, you know, I've, I've thought about that a lot, even when I started brewing in the late nineties back at, in brew pubs, that it's just a different world because it's, it's kind of two businesses crammed together. You, you've got to be, you have to make really good beer, but you also have to be a really good restaurant and, mm -hmm. and it's not the same skill set. They're totally different businesses. So you have to essentially run two really good businesses at the same time. Um, and, you know, and, and then there's this kind of hybrid model that I'm starting to see a lot more where uh, there's the, the space inside the brewery that is, that is uh, operated by a separate business just exclusively for service in that brewery. So uh, there's a, you know, there's a few of them here in Kansas City that operate like that and do a really good job. They've got a great, you know, great restaurant that operates in the brewery, but it's 
totally separate business owned and operated by uh, a different group of people than the people that run the brewery. Um, and I think there's definitely some advantages to that. You know, uh, there are a lot of brewers who just simply aren't cut out to own and operate restaurants, uh, but are cut out to own and operate a really great brewery. And, you know, you, you shouldn't, you know, it gives pe those people the ability to uh, own and operate a successful brewery while still having that food option and not having to, you know, learn a whole separate business in order to be successful. Yeah. See, see here in Lexington, I, I, one of my favorite examples is some of the food trucks have actually gone into that hybrid model and, uh, you know, have especially a pizza truck. That was what kind of really thought made me think about this was I used to go to one brewery for the pizza truck whenever it was, was there. And, and now I kind of go to the other brewery cause that's where they're based out of. Although they're, I think technically now based out of like four of the breweries <laughs> around here. So I guess the, that model is working well. Um, but, but it, it is interesting cause I, I like the variety and, and two, sometimes I think those marriages don't always work when you randomly add a, I don't know, I guess you call it a half-assed version or some weird thing where you're just kind of saying, Hey, we need food, but we want it to be more consistent. Let's just see who will fit this space. And sometimes that doesn't go well. And that can also be an off, uh, an off-putting, uh, thing to the brewery. Yeah. So I would say from my experience, I've worked at five different breweries now um, and all five of them have done a completely different situation. Uh, the first one was Flying Dogs. So this was back in uh, 2016. Um, they have a kind of like the hybrid, but the food truck is connected to outside. Um, so it's not actually inside with a kitchen. It's just still the food truck. It's just always permanently there every day. Um, and that is they still I mean, tap rooms now shut down because of COVID still, but um, it was doing really well and that's been perfect. And that's kind of how, uh, where I work now when robot, they have a food truck, but it's inside the inside kitchen, twisted eats. So they still have different food trucks around the city, but they are a separate business inside our, our brewery. So that's kind of nice that they can kind of do their own thing. And I feel like that does work the best. Um, and sometimes I've just seen it where our food trucks, you know, it starts out really great and then it fizzles out because, you know, the work ethic is different. They see uh, different long-term goals, whether it wasn't being inside the brewery or they wanted more money, they're not getting as much, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out that way. Um, but I know as a consumer, I hate hearing when breweries do have this massive restaurant and people, and I'm like going to a new city and I'm like, okay, which ones do you recommend? And they're like, oh, this one's great, this one's great. And then all of a sudden there's like, well, this one's good, but their food is better. So the quality of the beer has now become down here and the food. So they're like, oh, go for the pizza. Oh, and they have beer included. So it's like, you kind of don't want that as well. You kind of like what you said, like you have to have really good beer and really good food, kind of like match it, but you don't want the beer to be outshined by the food. So it's kind of like a toss up, but in a new city, if they don't have a food option at a brewery, I kind of just like, well, I don't want to go because now I don't, you know, I don't have that kind of time to go get food real quick and then still make it to all the breweries that I have on my list. That's a, a very good point. And that's why uh, I was talking about the distillery district, about how there was a, a bunch of uh, different options. I also like a, a good uh, brewery that's uh, next to a good food place that's totally separate, but they work very well together. Uh, I, I love those options. Too. Like here's free delivering if you order next door. Mm -hmm. That's always a nice partnership as well. Uh, and and uh, 
do we have any final thoughts as we wrap up another um, under the influence craft beer roundtable? Because we've touched on a bunch of topics and um, I, a wide variety of that. <laughs> uh, good good night, sweet prince. Steel reserve two eleven. Hold you. I will hold you tight against our hearts. Milwaukee's best and premium uh, Mickey's fine malt liquor. Uh, RIP to the brands lost in the great purge of 2021 by Molten Coors. Thank you all for being part of this. I truly, truly appreciate it. And it was a blast as always. Thanks for having us. Thanks a lot.